to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining us today for a second chat is Paul Savage. Paul is into all sorts of things. His kind of day job is as the Managing Director of Saviour Medical Limited, which has got a pretty mixed and wide-ranging portfolio. He's been involved with the Lifeboats, the UK Search and Rescue Medical Group, with a Faculty of Pre-Hospital Care at the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. That's the odd thing with the British military. But day-to-day is pretty heavily involved with creating and constructing simulation and moulage. And he's going to chat to us today about, I guess, kind of the perfect sim. Paul, thanks so much for coming back to chat to us. Thank you very much indeed. It's an absolute pleasure. And thank you for everyone who got in touch after the check card podcast. And I'm glad you're out there creating your own check cards and it's created a stimulus to get that agenda rolling, which is brilliant. Thank you for inviting me back to talk about my passion. I think there's there's no other way to put it. This is the dirty hobby that's got completely out of control. Having built myself a, a proper prosthetics workshop in the back garden during lockdown last year. And I was where I might spent most of lockdown very happily uh, continuing to create things like a mad scientist. So <laughs> it's been a fun journey, but I'm incredibly passionate about accurate simulation. I think we use the term sometimes wrongly when we talk about high fidelity and low fidelity, because no one's really defined those in a, in a sensible way. But I think accurate is, is the nice way of looking at it, realistic where you can create a setting and it can be as simple or as complicated as you like that is so real that for that moment in time you completely lose the clinician when all the ducks line up that that clinician for just a few minutes is not believing that it's a simulation and I think if you can achieve that compared to I don't know let's say a very unrealistic rigid plastic mannequin with some tomato sauce on it you know the difference is amazing when you see the effect on that clinician and you get that buy-in and you get that total engagement that's that's what i'm i'm always trying to aim for absolutely there is a world of difference in what i've taken away from simulations when they've been a plastic mannequin with a, a laminated bit of card in front of it with some symptoms versus the sims that you just disappear into and suddenly you're living in a world where everything is at times stressful and uninvolved how did you end up getting into this? This is a pretty weird niche to, to disappear into. It is a very weird niche, and it starts with a very weird story. So if you'll accommodate me for a few minutes. I was sat with a damp backside in a rock pool in North Devon in 2006 with a delightful red marker pen wound to my forehead. And I was being attended to by a local lifeboat crew. And as my last podcast said, I was clinical lead of the RNLI for 10 years. And uh, we were throwing an exercise to test a North Devon lifeboat crew and to test their response. And it didn't go as planned. And when we were at the debrief, I sort of said to them, you know, what went wrong? And, and the guy genuinely just squared up to me. And he was quite a robust character. And he said, well, I don't know how to treat a red pen injury. <laughs> And I thought, you know what? He's incredibly fair because what is it? Have I just been drawn on? Have I got ink poisoning? You know, uh, what is it? I mean, it's meant to be a cut, but it didn't look like a cut. It literally was a wedged whiteboard marker lying across my forehead. And I suddenly thought, how unfair is that? That we expect people to behave how we'd like them. When we're running a sim, we expect people to do the things that we want them to do and we've got our key learning outcomes and all that sort of stuff. But, but actually, if we're not giving them that scene for them to react to is just unfair. And I think we're then setting the learner up to fail. And I think that's just a really unfair thing to do, especially if you then turn around and say the sim wasn't as good as it should have been. And that's where the drive started. So from there, I put myself on a couple of courses and one thing snowballs to the next and one Christmas list leads to a birthday list, leads to a shelf in the garage, which then leads to three shelves in the garage, which then leads to half the garage, which now led to a workshop. And it's just gone on from there. It's and to the point now where I'm, really it's becoming the thing that I'd like to spend my last career doing full-time and I love it it's absolutely brilliant and the effects it can create is awesome and I think the first thing I'd say to anybody who is sat there keen and wondering is I cannot draw to save my life I'm one of those guys who draws a horse with the four square legs that looks like he's been run over by a tractor I'm not artistic you don't need to be artistic and I've taken this very interesting journey that I'm a clinician who's played on the edges of professional makeup with the TV 
makeup artists who know their subject but know nothing about medicine. And we've sat in a room together, myself and a few characters who've done some amazing films and have stunning skills. And they've learned from me and I've learned from them. And I've preached the medicine at them and they've preached the professional level makeup at me. And the two have met somewhere in the middle. And it's been a great journey. Fantastic. And I guess that's the thing. In some senses, you can create some of the aspects of a real job quite easily. I'm saying that kind of hesitantly. But oftentimes as an instructor, when I'm putting people through sim and moulage and scenarios, there's still a lot of cues that you have to feed in because actually we can't make our patients have catastrophic bleed or we can't make them become really grey and horrendous looking. Or I guess, or can we? Oh yeah, you can. That's the thing, you can. I have to tell you, you know, 90% of it is smoke and mirrors. And when you learn the smoke and mirrors, you then go, oh, that's stupid, that's really easy. You'll never watch a film the same. I now look and go, I can see the edges on that wound. God, they must have paid a fortune in Hollywood, and that's rubbish. And you have those sort of funny moments yourself. But I think, no, you can. You really can. So uh, if you'll indulge me, I think what I'd like to do is just take you through my four key points to creating an awesome sim, which I hope will will help the listeners of your podcast just to look at their sim and, and see if they can help themselves along that route as well. Absolutely. Just before we dive into it, I guess the other question that we probably should touch on is why we sim. What's the advantage? I think, from my opinion, it's not about the repetition of a clinical skill. You can do that on a standard mannequin. Let's look at, I don't know, airway management. You can practice the muscle memory, kinesthetic skill time and time again until you can do it with your eyes shut. But it's then, can you do it with your eyes shut with an airway that's hosing at you upside down in a ditch on your back with your back in three inches of water that's where i like to take things i suppose i again a very simple sim but i remember it very clearly i was actually in my interview for the role at the rnli and bizarrely at one point they said can you teach cpr and some of the other people who did cpr were there doing what i would call classic carpet cpr and i just grabbed the mannequin and put it in the corner of the room and piled a load of chairs on top of it and produced a very small space. And the interview panel looked a bit strange at me and thought I was as crazy as I am. And they said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm creating the gunnel of a boat because when you go on board a fishing boat, you haven't got all this room. You haven't got a big blue carpet. You've got this tiny little bit where you told me he's on a fishing boat and well, this is where he is. So why don't we train on the environment we're going to be teaching in? Or why don't we teach on the environment we're going to be actually practicing in? I've got a nice little small space here. I can find space. When I teach at university, I love doing, it sounds wrong, but I love doing sims and toilets. Because as everyone out there who's a clinician will know, resuscitation around the corner of a toilet is really difficult. <laughs> Getting into the cubicle in the first place is difficult if the patient's fallen against the door. It's things like that that I think you just can't beat. Getting that sim as accurate and as realistic as you can. I suppose I could answer your question in a way by nugget number one, if you like, of my sim journey is that pre-planning phase where you contemplate what, why, who, and where are you training? And what I mean by that is your first question, who am I training? Because if you're setting up a sim for a police firearms team who are going to come through the building, clearing it, and then maybe their medic's going to peel off and just check casualties as they pass through, you're going to have to do one level of visual wounding that's very quick. But you're not going to have to brief your patient massively because they're not going to stay in play. They're going to literally do a quick and dirty triage. And some of the police firearms teams now just do red or dead and move on. But you might just have to have a lot of people in a lot of places with superficial visual wounds. Or if you're doing a HEMS team, you know, experienced clinicians on one patient well, that patient then might have to have hyper-realistic wounds with a full package of signs and symptoms and, and disease progression and, and scene progression and a hell of a lot more briefing. So I think the first question is, who are you training and what are their desired learning outcomes? What's the end result of this sim all about? Is it about a process like, you know, the triage sieve? Is it about a process, you know, HEMS team RSIing or anything in between? What is the actual desired learning outcome of this training and then i think you need to look at when and where it's happening thinking about 
I've got another lovely, funny story about how you can get things wrong. And I've learned most of my stuff from how I get things wrong. I got asked to provide the moulage for a very large marauding terrorist type incident. And it was in a shopping centre at night. And that was like, great. Okay, that's cool. There's, there's going to be no members of the public there. We're not going to distress anybody, etc., etc. So I turned up with my normal 47 litres of blood, which I'll come to in a minute. And noticed that the floor was white marble with white grout. <laughs> and it's like, oh... <laughs> my, my insurance policy doesn't cover this and I'll come to insurance in a minute but it, it was like oh hang on a minute I can't do this and so straight away because there hadn't been that thought process about where are we holding it it was just like oh there's a shopping centre going we'll do it there and that shopping centre was pristine and the caretaker was hilarious I rocked in with all this gear and he just looked at me and went not a chance son not a chance and I was like yeah you're right aren't you he went yeah you're going to leave this grey out bright red it's going to look like the cross of St George on every single set of tiles and so we ended up having people on tarpaulins and inco pads, and it just wasn't the same. So it's that pre-planning. Who are you training? Where are you training? When is it happening? Is it in the light? Is it in the dark? Is it outside? If it's outside, have you got issues to think about as far as heat and cold and, and actual real issues for the teams that are playing? You also need, in the pre-planning phase, you need to just check with the organisers, you know, what are their plans? And we did a, a 40-patient knife attack with 150 uninjured, so 190 people on scene. And they pre-briefed the 40 patients to turn up an hour before the kickoff. And suddenly you're like, hang on a sec, I can't make up 40 people in an hour. So we ended up with six of us making them up. And that worked, but had we not known, you know, within at least a day or two's notice, had you turned up at five o'clock to suddenly be faced by 40 people, then the whole exercise would have collapsed. And this was a big job, there was a lot of people involved. So that pre-planning phase is crucial. And along with that goes budget. Most people will budget zero for moulage. And there tends to be an awful race to the bottom. It's someone like, I can do it for 50 quid. I can do it for 40 quid. And before you know it, people are turning up and paying you to do it. And it's dreadful in a way because actually what you then find is the materials that are used tend to be what I will call joke shop materials. And I'm not being rude there. Some of them are just bought straight out of joke shops. And joke shop blood stains stains for weeks and if you want to send someone home looking like a baboon's backside great use the stuff it's dreadful most of it isn't mouth safe some of it's not even skin safe believe it or not and a lot of latex used and a lot of tissue paper and i'll come to that when i talk about the actual correct wound but joke shop materials produce joke shop effects and a lot of complications along the side of them so make sure you have this early upfront discussion with the people running it saying well actually you know do this properly you might need to invest 50 quid, 70 quid, 100 quid in gear to make this happen. And I'm talking about a big exercise there. I'm not talking about a little sim. But it is good. When people are doing these big, amazing planning things, you need to get in early. I was stunned at an exercise the other day in an airport we were doing. I was actually adjudicating it rather than doing the moulage. And they'd had a classic race to the bottom to get this makeup artist to do it. And I calculated how much they spent on Olay's dressings Russell chest seals, which were obviously not reusable. The tourniquets case they used might have been reusable. But they, they spent over £1,000 that night ripping things open. And yet they spent next to nothing on the moulage. And actually the exercise crashed and burned because the wounds didn't survive first contact with the dressing or a firefighter. And therefore when they were arriving at the casualty clearing centre, the dressings were coming off and there was no wound left. And the medical teams were going, well, what am I treating here? So budget is crucial. When people are looking at decent sim, budget is crucial. And the final thing, in the very boring bit, but it's quite crucial, in the pre-planning phase is to make sure that you have appropriate risk assessments in place um, and appropriate insurance. Especially when you're doing things for people, you know, sticking them down holes and uh, sticking them in crushed cars and, and interesting things that you can create in sim. Just making sure the risk assessments are done and you, if you do get into makeup, are appropriately insured. And nothing worse than removing a lady's microbladed eyebrows to remind you that insurance is quite important. <laughs> I'm not even sure I know what that is, but I, I, sh I will take your word for it. <laughs> Very expensive eyebrows that if you get your wound on the forehead a little bit too low, you remove for her and she's just <laughs> spent a fortune on them and it's time to open your checkbook. He says with, with a wry smile. So it's important just to think of those things as well, just to make sure that people are okay. What about the actors, I guess? Because they, they seem to be the critical part of most moulage. Yes, I think you've got one or two choices, haven't you? You either go actor or mannequin. And in the mannequin world, there are mannequins these days that look incredibly realistic. Some of the new ones from the company Lifecast have uh, been involved in recently, and they are stunning. 
I've been lucky enough to be working with them on a drowning mannequin that will actually hose water at you and a chest injured toddler that will produce a very complicated airway as it bleeds profusely at you in something that is indistinguishable from a human being. They really are indistinguishable from a human being and down to the finite detail because the Lifecast guys have recruited people from film and TV sets to paint these and they come with a variety of body shapes and they've actually been cast off of real human beings which is why they look incredibly real. So if you've not seen those, have a look at their website and blow your brain. Absolutely amazing stuff. So you've got the sort of mannequin end of the woods, be it either the very basic mannequins or the very realistic mannequins. And then you've got your actors. Personally, given a choice, where I can, I like to use actors. You can't get past someone staring at you, you know, talking to you, speaking at you, screaming at you. That physical contact between two human beings, I think, brings something massive to the sim. And... Actors themselves, when you have your sim, you're doing anything, whether it be a one patient to a 40 patient, they bring their own problems with them. So I've got a little checklist of things to think about. And I tend to try and, and speak to them in advance if I can. If it's a big job, I'll have a phone conversation with the people who are volunteering. Because, and this is the first thing, is that these people are normally volunteering for you. Therefore, oftentimes you end up with two age spectrums. They're either the elderly with time on their hands or their parents trying to fob their kids off onto you on a free crash. And both come with their own complications. So the elderly, obviously, incredibly willing, but not necessarily as flexible to lie under cars and have motorcycles popped on top of them. And you'd have an inappropriate scene. You know, if you're doing a terrorist incident, for example, you know, unless it was a terrorist incident in a rest home, if all your patients were elderly, again, you've lost your element of realism there. So a nice cross-section of ages if you can get the youngsters, the middle-aged people in to play. But be careful with the elderly, how you position them, their heat, etc. Because they're so willing, but then they end up getting really cold or unwell themselves. And then be careful with the youngsters. I'm always reticent when we're doing something and mum turns up and says, oh great, yeah, here's my three kids, I'm off shopping. And I have to have a polite conversation. Uh, no, you're not. These need to be safeguarded. And your mum, I need your consent to do the makeup I'm doing, etc, etc. So kids are great, and I love putting kids into scenarios because sometimes that can be quite a duress for the treating team. But I'm quite strict about mum stays or dad stays. Whoever brought them stays so they're not running around like crazy and taking their makeup off and, you know, they're safeguarded well and appropriately. I really quite feel that's really quite crucial. And in that sort of pre-brief chat, I always find out what people's skin tones are. There's nothing worse than making wounds in classic Caucasian pink to turn up and find that your volunteer doesn't have a Caucasian pink skin tone and you look a complete idiot. And you spend a very long time trying to make a piece that's not coloured right for the person look right. So, you know, that nice polite chat, early doors, talk about skin tones, explain to them the wounds I'd like to put on them or the sort of role that they're being stooged for, just to find out if it's okay. Because, again, things I've learnt through the years i was looking after a young lady it was just a single patient for a fire service exercise in a vehicle and she had bilateral open femurs and i made her up with these bilateral open femurs and and some days you're on fire and you're like wow these are brilliant other days you, you struggle a bit like anything artistic it's a bit like you never get two haircuts that are the same you know sometimes you're just like I, you can't touch me today this is awesome and other days it's just like oh, okay it's okay and these were awesome these femurs i was so happy with and we walked her out of the porter cabin towards the car. She went, I'm not getting in that. I went, what? She said, I'm, I'm not getting in the car. I said, why? She said, my parents were killed in a car accident last year. And you're like, oh, my God. Mm. No one explained to her that we were going into a car wreck. Quite rightly so. Took her back in the port cabin, took it all off, made sure she was okay. We get so blasé, I think, sometimes as clinicians, and we see so many things. And me, with my previous career as a physio, you know, someone says, this aches, and you've already got it in your hands. And it's like, we just get that sort of blasé that we assume everyone's okay with everything so i always have a chat to people about look this is the sim we're planning on doing we're planning on popping you in a car with some broken legs the team are going to come in and do this to you and that might involve these treatments is this okay and you gain their consent the way you'd gain their consent for a, a medical procedure because uh, they might turn around and say well actually i'm happy with the car being cut around me but if they show me a needle i'm going to pass out and so you might need to find a different role for them. I'm also very aware that everybody who crosses the planet normally doesn't like a part of their body. We all have bits of our body we just don't like. So that pre-conversation about, I'm planning on putting a wound on your chest. And they're like, mm, I'd rather you didn't. 
you can use my legs or my head but not my chest and so you go okay and you mix and match until everybody's happy just they've got the wound on them in the place they're comfortable with in a scenario they're comfortable with knowing the treatments they're going to receive are not going to upset them because i do think if you're medical we can get carried away and not realize that these things can upset people is there anything else that we need to think of in terms of of actors a good pre-brief i've changed my wording because i used to say come in old clothes i now say please bring old clothes because with the modern trauma medicine as you'll know you know we do a lot of trauma cut downs and a lot of the courses that i'm teaching on or doing sim for they will cut clothes and i'm a big believer of you know train hard fight easy and and you tend to learn what you do and it always worries me in sims when people say i would do this i would do that i would do something else i'm much preferring to do it and so if they're like well i would cut their clothes off at this point i let them go okay do it as long as it's down to a you know in sim down to a level of either swimwear or you know t-shirt and pants so we maintain correct modesty etc etc so i think it's it's really important to let your patient know or your, your volunteer know if they're going to be in that sort of situation so like a come in swimwear because most people are happy to be seen in swimwear don't wear sort of tiny see-through undies because that's always an embarrassment to everyone and actually then bring your old clothes in a bag because <laughs> the number of times i've had people who are there in shredded clothes going how am i going to go home on the bus <laughs> and you're like ah and you're that you're knitting their clothes back together with tape and i'm sure there's people out there listening giggling because they've done it and you're like oh i'm sorry your trousers are held together with tape please don't run for the bus so it's it's that bringing an old bag and Again, if you're sticking things onto people, it's polite before they come. The bit is going to be stuck needs to be shaved. Otherwise, you give people a free wax when you take the thing off. So it's like, you know, ladies, ideally, put no makeup on before you come. Because I'm going to put makeup on you when you come. And all you're going to have to do is take the nice stuff off that you've put on. Bring your old clothes. Shave the bits I'm going to use. And the idea being that when you finish with that actor, they leave in the clothes they arrived in with no bits left on them as if they never come in the first place that's the, the perfect way to send someone away it's a great point in terms of cutting clothes off because so often uh, i'm guilty of it and sims that i run you just sort of gloss over that bit and say yeah yeah it's fine you're down to skin now but actually the majority of people haven't been taught how to cut off clothes in a structured manner in a kind of time efficient manner it's something that often comes unstuck when they do it for the first time for real because they <laughs> They're not very good at it. I couldn't agree with you more. And that, that trick of being able to do it in a systematic, appropriate way that also, especially you know, in the environment I work in, in the SAR environment, allows you to rewrap your patient when you've got down to skin and seen what you need to do. I know a lot of the sort of high-end trauma teams tend to cut to naked and then pop on a scoop and insulate in the scoop. But sometimes in the SAR arena, we can't do that. So it's about also knowing how to cut clothes that you can reposition them back on your patient and then repackage and keep them warm as well. And those are good things to train, you know, really good things to train. And charity shops are full of clothes that you can chop up for next to no money. And you'd be amazed, you know, just you put a little notice in your, in your hospital or your organisation just saying, can people donate old clothes, please, that we can use for training? And you'll end up looking like a clothes bank. It's brilliant. And then you've got all this stuff. It's really sad, though, when people are donating clothes that are better than yours. So you play swap. <laughs> You're like, actually, these are my best clothes. I'm going to swap those in and, and keep the trousers that were just sent. Then cut my old trousers up. Which is another silly story, but it's true. We were running some fire service exercises in a very well-hailed area of the country. And we did a trawl of their charity shops. And literally everyone who was doing the makeup swapped clothes from the stuff that came from the charity shop. Because it was better and it was all designer labels. And they all got our own clothes up that we arrived on scene with. But there you go. What about the wounds themselves? How can we make these work in simulation terms? I think it's a really interesting world these days because initially, if you go back a few years, you know, people were sort of drawing on people with lipstick and, and this sort of stuff. And we were nowhere near the film and TV effects because the film and TV effects were using a lot of foam latex and not the latex that people buy from a joke shop, but big mixed foam latex to create these pieces and, and the sort of, if you like, in the era of the sort of 70s and 80s and 90s, that's how the prosthetics on films were created. And that was a really difficult process. And then we've seen that era of what I would call the basic bolt-on, the pre-formatted wound that's quite rigid but comes in a sort of flesh-coloured square. And then it's got sort of Velcro attached to it. And you wrap the Velcro around the limb and then hide it with a bit of clothes. And they're not bad. You know, they're incredibly robust. They will survive forever. But they're not very real either. They don't feel real. They're rigid plastic. And then things moved on that a little bit more and sleeves appeared. And I know some people love sim sleeves and trauma sleeves and these sort of devices, which are 
silicon sleeves with the wound embedded halfway down them. And, and that way, when you cut down, you know, you have a uniformity of colour down a limb. But you can't get away from the fact that if you really cut to naked, there's going to be a colour change. And you're going to notice the cuff and you're going to notice the shoulder. And it doesn't actually give you much flexibility. And I've seen organisations who've spent a lot of money on, you know, five or six sim sleeves and then gone, oh, it's the arm again today, is it? Or, ah, oh, it's the leg. Because the leg is always a mid-thigh GSW because that's the only sleeve we have. <laughs> and before you know it, you've killed the sim in that sense. And just so people know, there's nothing wrong in the process here. It's just truthful. Sleeves don't last forever because they are silicon and silicon degrades in oxygen. And so you find a year in, they become quite brittle and they start to fall apart. And they are what they are. They're brilliant. If that's how you want to progress, happy days. But there are alternatives. And these days, we've learned from the film and TV industry. And you can create, for not a lot of money at all, hyper-realistic soft feeling wounds that glue on and blend off so you can't see an edge match to the color of the patient with massive fidelity in the sense that you have variety of tissues and and you can see because they've been pre-sculpted and there's hundreds of these molds out and about on the market that you can then make your own wounds from and it means if you end up you know as a bit of a spotter with i don't know 10 different wounds 12 different wounds 15 whatever you want it's not always the GSW on the leg because the wound can go anywhere on the body. As long as it's appropriate, it can go anywhere. And so you can mix and match. And before you know it, you can create a variety of situations and be more clandestine and hide things. And, you know, I'm renowned by my paramedic students for, for being a bit mean. So I'll always do a stabbing scenario, for example. And I'll always end up with one wound in the armpit because they're horrible to find. But if someone's fighting and they go into a defense position with their hand above their head protecting their face their armpits exposed and oftentimes their shirts pulled up during a fight they get stabbed and then what do they do they don't know they've necessarily been stabbed they start to run full of adrenaline pull their shirt down get around the corner and collapse so you can make things incredibly real if you do it as if it is real and i know that's a funny thing to say but Think about how that wound has occurred on that person. The sort of buzz things about the wounds. It needs to look accurate. And to look accurate, nine times out of ten, less is more. You know, I see people putting wounds on and then putting massive sort of targets of bruising around them. But then you look at any real image and any half-decent wound has very little bruising around it because, as you'll know, the blood's come out. It's, it's not under the skin, so it's not trapped. And you get that discoloration of the wound edge, but you don't get these great big target-like bruises around them. And normally people stick a wound on that doesn't look that great and try to hide it by putting a target of bruising around it. And all they're doing actually is underlining it and going, look, there's a big false wound here. So I always go with the analogy, you know, less is more. My next pet hate is overblooding. And when I do these sort of talks, and I, I do do moulage talks now for makeup artists to try and teach them a little bit of Madison, I carry in with me a five-litre bottle of screen wash, as if I've got red liquid in it, not, not blue liquid. I put it on the table. I don't mention it through most of the, the talk. And at the very end, I just say, why have I brought this in? And they all look at me a bit weird. And they're going, well, are you going to demonstrate blood or whatever? And I went, no, because that's your circulating blood volume in the human body of an adult. And they're like, what? And then when they see it in a bottle of screen wash, it brings it home that, you know, most of the people working for film and TV will bring 10 of these to a film set for one patient. Sure. And you, you watch the average film, don't you? And it's spraying everywhere. And I think film and TV has a lot to answer for for that. We, everything is over-blooded. So I'm a big, big believer on things bleeding the right amount. And if that isn't catastrophic, then it isn't catastrophic. Let it be. You know, just put a little bit of blood around it. And picking up your tone before, if you want it to be catastrophic, you can be. There's, there's some very simple ways of making lovely little catastrophic bleeds where you can feed pipes. Even if you don't have a wound at all, you can get a little garden sprayer and an oxygen pipe and plug your oxygen pipe into the end of your garden sprayer, one of those pressurized garden sprayers. Um, tape with some nice sort of sleek tape or, or micropore the pipe around the crevices of the body bring it to the place where you want the catastrophic hemorrhage, chamfer the edge of the pipe, and then just cut a hole in the clothes. And uh, off you go. You know, make the pipe long enough that you're not right next to the patient. Pump up the pressure of the garden sprayer, fill it full of fake blood, and I'll come to your best fake blood for blood pumps in a minute, and just pulse the, the bit that would normally be spraying the plants. And you can get a nice pulsatile bleed. And the cool thing about it is if you run the pipe where the actual 
circulation would run, when someone applies a tourniquet, they'll shut it off. I'm a big stickler when I, I teach people moulage about king at the circulatory system because I don't think there's anything more that's going to turn off a very, very experienced clinician than someone having a catastrophic bleed from a part of the body that you can never, ever have a catastrophic bleed from because there isn't any significant circulation there. And instantly you just go, that's false then. And it's that that can turn people off straight away. So I think not overblooding and cat bleeds in the right place, another crucial thing. I was going to say, you, you mentioned blood there. And uh, yeah, I've seen everything from food dyeing, custard, right through to, as you say, joke shop kind of blood that stains forever. What works? So there are professional bloods on the market. Now, you know, this sort of stuff looks good. It isn't cheap. A half-decent bottle of blood, and by that I mean sort of 500 mils worth, is going to cost you £20. But it's not the stuff you chuck on the floor. It's the stuff that you dress the wound with, and you might need two dobs of it on a baby wipe to dress the wound. So a 500 mil bottle might last you months and months and months. It's about using the right stuff in the right place at the right time. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that goes with it. And you have, in the makeup world, you have thick bloods. And you put thick bloods in the bottom of wounds and you shine them up with a bit of water. And actually that creates the smoke and mirror effect of you have no clue how deep this wound is now. Um, you have running bloods, as they're called, the sort of things you dress around wounds with. And then you have the cheap and nasty stuff that you're going to make yourself in the sense it's cheek and nasty, and you're going to pump it out of the blood pumps and throw it over the floor and, and not stain anything. And on that, I will give you one little trip, pull secret blood recipe for the stuff you're going to chuck all over the floor or run out of blood pumps. So it's got to be very liquid. It can't be thick. So most people tend to use clear fluid of some sort, like water, and then they'll put either other blood with it or some dye, and then the dyes can dye the patient, and you end up with all the problems there. But the stuff is pink because they've started with white and added red to it, and it's pink. There are some blood powders you can buy from some of the professional companies, but they stain horrendously, including not only people, but they stain concrete. So, you know, if they're staining concrete, you can imagine. And I've got some friends that, I've <laughs> bless them, have been my actors for years. And the number of times when we're using that stuff, I have sent them home with sort of red legs for the next two weeks. <laughs> so avoiding that like the plague. Your, your trick is, here's the trick, very, 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 very cheap diet coke. So, you know, your, your bottle of 19p Diet Coke from your cheapest supermarket, you can get it. You know, your Happy Shopper 19p Diet Coke. Diet because it's not sticky because the sugar and doesn't attract the insects and animals in the summer. Degas it. So just take all the lids off and let it sit in your shed for a week. And every now and then put the lid back on and shake it until it's completely flat. And then add the tiniest bit of fake blood to it. And just bring its color back up. And it comes out of blood pumps looking amazing. And you can chuck it on the floor and it looks amazing. So in terms of the wounds themselves, um, we've talked a little bit about how they look and about skin tones and about blood. What about location? Is there, is there anything that's kind of you know, golden rules on location? Yeah, thank you. I think one of the things that I'm, again, a bit of a stickler for is whether you be a clinician and you have a good knowledge of surface anatomy or whether you're teaching this to somebody who doesn't have a knowledge of surface anatomy. I think giving people that basic understanding of what lies beneath the skin at what level is so crucial. Again, I've seen people who received a brief, you know, a stab wound on somebody's chest during an exercise. And when that wound's been done, it's been put right down very low on the right-hand side, right at the bottom of the ribs, because that person's understanding was your ribs equal your lungs, which we all know, especially anteriorly, is not the case. Um, and so actually what they produced was a lovely liver laceration. And the team treated it as that because the knife was going straight in, prop knife. And it was like, they looked at it and went, well, that's straight in the liver. So we'll treat for internal bleeding and a liver laceration, etc. And at the end in the sim, they were pulled on the fact that they hadn't thought about the lungs. And they were saying, why would I? It's, it's not near the lungs. And, and the person doing the sim hadn't realized where the wound had been put and it had been put so low down. So I think that understanding, as well as the understanding of the circulatory system and understanding that concept of where you will and won't get catastrophic bleeding from that surface anatomy knowledge just to know what organs are you over and when you're asked to do a wound making sure that you're you're putting it in the right place from that point of view and i think from there that leads into if you're attaching things think about the right glues some glues are water-based some glues are not they're silicon based and and if you are sticking things on with glue 
make sure you know what environment you're going in. This whole podcast is just Paul's 100 Ways to Get Things Wrong. But in my early days, I didn't know the difference between glues. I used a water-based glue and it's a beautiful head wound on a diver who'd been propped. And I was very, very proud of this wound in my early days. And I popped him in a wetsuit and I popped him with a split balaclava and we had him floating in full diving tanks for a lifeboat exercise only to watch his head wound peel off and float by the side of him <laughs> like some bad piece of sewage. I'm not realising that water-based glues dissolve in water. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's, that's why I shouldn't use that one. And likewise, when you run a blood pump, you know, if you run a blood pump and you're, you're pumping out the coke and red colouring, that will lift glue as well if you've glued something on. So it's important to have the right glue in the right place as well. And that's another little trick to know. And I think the final thing about the wound is that it's made of the right materials. So many people like to use wax because it's easy to stick on and it's easy to carve and it's very cheap. Or they like to use latex, again, which is, tends to come out of the joke shop really. Wax is brilliant if you're doing a piece that no one's ever going to touch. So they're brilliant for creating some really nice effects that you might want to photograph for a first aid manual or photograph for a PowerPoint, because as we know, real imagery these days is hard to come by. And that's another thing that moulage can be used for. It can be used for training manuals and PowerPoints if you get it correct. But wax does not survive first contact with the enemy. The minute you touch it, the wound just smudges, as you would imagine, because wax doesn't set, it stays soft. So you can create this beautiful thing which then someone comes along and sticks a dressing over the top and does some nice direct pressure. And before you know it, you've just got a blob of flat wax on the dressing stuck to it. So when it's peeled off for someone to examine that wound, there's nothing but a blood stain and no wound there at all. And latex obviously has some significant allergic reaction issues with it. So you've got to be careful with that stuff as well. So there's some sort of hints about if you're making wounds, again, learn how to make wounds properly. You can learn and it is just a process, it's not artistic. And if you use the right materials, which are normally silicones and things to make the silicon very flesh-like, these things can be unbelievably effective. And you can actually learn exactly the same process for creating wounds as they would use on films and TV. It isn't hard. And before you know it, you can be making those sort of pieces that disappear and, and just the edges blend off and they look amazing. So yeah, along with why and what are you doing and the pre-planning along with the correct actor the correct wound adds to the whole piece i guess the last piece of the puzzle is how you set your actor your wound and your learning outcomes into some kind of a coherent scene yeah exactly the interesting thing is when you look at this and you talk to the guys who do work on film and this sort of stuff they're just pure makeup they just do makeup and then there's another person doing special effects and there's another person doing hair and there's another person doing scenery and another person doing props. And in medsim, you can be everything. You are literally hair, makeup, props, scene, etc. So I think is as well as creating the person, the scenario is capped off by setting that scene around them. And that can be done really easily. You can have a whole run of your own dummy props, be them dummy inhalers, dummy auto-injectors, medicines that are made safe. I have all my old broken mobile phones, I found out what the in-case-of-emergency screen would look like on them, created it on a computer, printed it out, stuck it to the screen. I hope my students search pockets and find mobile phones to glean information about patients. So you can build up that sort of stuff which you can stash on the patient. <laughs> a nice collection of heroin spoons and, and syringes with brown liquids in, and it's like caramel. You, know, you can create it, you can set it in the spoon, you can suck it up into the syringe and let it set, make the need, blunt the end of the needle off or use a giving needle so it's even safer in that sense and blunt it off and pop that next to your unconscious patient who has a loose tourniquet around one of their arms and you now have something that people can go, oh, hang on a minute, even better, pop that patient in a toilet slumped over the bowl with the drug paraphernalia around in respiratory arrest and you've got a really focused scene and people can then look for that evidence and and we know you know with the royal college of surgeons pre-hospital framework one of the elements in, in many of the courses is forensic awareness and scene preservation and we don't teach that enough i don't think and i think it's really crucial to look at things and say ah what is going on in the bigger picture here what is the scene telling me i've done head injured patients at the bottom of a flight of stairs and sometimes i've done it that actually i've put three or four dobs of blood from the very top to the bottom and maybe put if it was in a house a slipper on the top step, glasses halfway down the stairs, and then the patient at the very bottom. And someone reading the scene can go, oh, hang on a minute, they've come from the top, there's a slipper at the top, and there's three blood marks down the stairs. And other times I might have just put them at the bottom and put one tiny smear at the bottom. And they tell a different story. 
And I think you can use these sort of things and tricks to make the scene more realistic and for people to make their mechanism of injury decision. What's going on here? Reading that scene, that crucial skill that we need as pre-hospital practitioners. I think when you're setting the scene as well, we've got to dress the wound. I talk about dressing it, but I mean clothing. You know, if I'm doing burns on people, I will take clothing outside. I'll soak it in some very flammable alcohol and set light to it and then wait for it to burn where I want it to burn and then stamp it out wait for it to be cool and then put it on the patient and blend that into the makeup because uh, there's nothing like someone with fake burns on them with their clothes burnt and shredded and hanging off to really set the piece off especially as the cl- burnt clothing smells so you've now got that other dimension of a decent smell on the subjects of smells you can make them really offensive try taking a pint of milk leave it in the summer sun for two weeks and then mix that into a couple of broken eggs and a packet soup Put that over the bonnet of a car and have your patient pinned over the bonnet of the car and see how many responders vomit when they smell it. Because <laughs> it's disgusting. And you need an actor with no sense of smell or with clove oil wedged so far up their nostrils they can smell nothing. Because it's horrendous. It's that thing where you're like, oh, hang on a minute, that's really awful. I know somebody who goes as far as using quite a strong ammonia and they will soak some of their trousers in ammonia and they will be the unconscious tramp who horrendously smells of urine. And it's very offensive. And you might go, well, that's going a bit too far. But it's real. And if you're finding that person in the right scene, you know, this poor homeless person who's got nowhere and they smell, they still need care. They still need that attention. But we can be put off, can't we? We can be disengaged. And I think, you know, that sort of stuff, you can make sim incredibly real. I haven't got a lot of hair left these days, but whenever I buzz my head, I will save the hair and I burn it. And if I'm doing a burn simulation, I will burn it and sprinkle it around because it really smells. And you get that smell of burnt hair. So, you know, you can put the pieces together where you've got the burnt hair smell. The person stood there with fake burns on them with shredded clothes, screaming in pain. And suddenly you've got a really nice burn simulation that can take you five minutes to set up these are not hours and hours and hours to create these things if you know the tricks of the trade if you like so many people will put a a wound on somebody and then cut a big oval hole around it in their clothing and so it's obvious you walk up to somebody and they've got a pair of jeans on and they've got a big oval hole and then a wound in the middle of the hole well that's not how it happens is it you know if someone's for example got a knife wound You might not even see it. The clothing mark might be so tiny or the clothing might have been lifted up like that fight I was talking about at the time of knifing and then it's been pulled down afterwards. Or if they've had some sort of penetrating wound that's gone through their trousers and into them, will it have taken material into the wound with it? Like a GSW will take material, you know, into the wound with it. So why not actually create the little hole in the material you're trying to create and then take that material into the wound with you and wedge it in there with a bit of thick blood and intersperse ripped material into, say, an open fracture, the way it would be. And so suddenly people are like, oh, hang on a minute, there's clothing in this wound. How do I make that clean? How do I address it? How do I look at it? So I like to dress wounds and finish them. And very much avoid clean patients. You see in Sims, someone sat there perfectly clean with just like a burn on them. Well, if they've got a very big burn on their hand, they're going to be singed elsewhere and they're going to have a bit of smoke. And and so when you look at patients on the television, you know, oftentimes they'll have, you know, if they've been ejected from a car or something, they're not going to be just there with their femur. They're going to be covered in grass and mud. And and so actually doing the other environmental effects of dirting people up and sooting people up and this sort of stuff can create that final little piece on the pastiche that you go, wow. So, you know, you have the right props, with the right setting around them, with the right smells, with the right look, with the right dressed clothing. And that's when you can really just make the thing fly. And then you can get the Nirvana. It's interesting, sort of sitting here with my instructing hat on, actually a lot of what you're talking about removes the need for me to intervene in the scene. Because all of those clues and all of the aspects of diagnosis and scene management are all built into the scene. And it avoids us having to say oh you know the patient's looking a bit pale or they appear to be short of breath or there's a pool of diarrhea around them and it lets the learner find that for themselves which i guess is a much higher fidelity much more realistic way of doing it you couldn't have said it better i mean there's nothing like kneeling in fake diarrhea to remind yourself that you shouldn't do it (laughs) and you are right in the sense that if you can get to that nirvana and i'm gonna put one caveat to it in a minute but if you can get to that nirvana the only thing that you need to step in on is the physiology that you cannot change on the patient. 
So if you give them the, the right breathing rate, unless it's ridiculous, they'll probably be able to mock it up for you. They might be able to mock up certain airway noises. About the only thing you'll need to step in and coax your team on is taking a pulse. You might need to change that. They might have taken a central cap refill. You might need to change that. They might be auscultating. You'll have to tell them what they can hear. But apart from that, you know, or if it was a blood sugar level, you have to tell them that. But you're only really letting them do it and then them say, hmm, okay, I've got a pulse of 90. Is that correct? Well, that's lovely. Thank you for taking it. But actually in this scenario, it's 110 or whatever. Apart from that, you can keep totally quiet and just watch the thing unfold in front of your eyes. And I'm desperate to make people aware because they might be like, yeah, 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 Paul, but, you know, hang on a tick. I'm trying to teach this course and I haven't got hours to spend doing all this malarkey. What are you talking about? You're just talking about the, the best possible outcome. And I just want to say, you know, that when you know what you're doing, you can create amazing effects in very short spaces of time, what I call quick and dirty effects. They can look visually stunning. You can teach people how to do an actual fizzing acid attack. So you know, the patient's skin is fizzing, it looks red, their skin peeling off, and having shown someone how to do it for 20 minutes, you can recreate that in less than five minutes. And remodel it if you want to run multiple scenarios. It takes you minutes to reset it. And yet the effect of people coming in, someone screaming with their skin fizzing, safely fizzing, I might add, because I know someone who tried to do it with bleach, which was never a good start, but their skin safely fizzing with the right coloration of their skin, with the right effects, et cetera, et cetera. So these things, sometimes you need to put in some prep time before the day, but these things are not labor intensive if you know what you're doing you know, on the day. You can do them in the middle of the courses. You can break away and get people prepped whilst your class is having a coffee. It's not hours and hours and hours if you've been shown the right way to do stuff. Fantastic. So you've talked about some spectacular stuff there. And I guess I just want to reflect on the fact that a lot of this is really quite achievable. And it, it seems that with a little bit of input, you can get quite a lot done without needing to employ somebody to come and do it for you. Absolutely. And I suppose you've all been sat there waiting for it. Here comes the blatant adverts. You know, <laughs> and there's, there's no, we're not going to hide this. For those of you that are into Instagram, I'd just love you to go and have a look at my Instagram feed. A, I need some more followers, please. I don't have many followers. It makes me feel lonely. But my Instagram feed, at Saviour Medical. I use Instagram primarily because of the visual nature of it to show that's everything I do moulage-based primarily. And if you have a spin through that feed, A, there's some lovely little tips and tricks on it, but also you'll see what can be created, bearing in mind that I'm not artistic. And you'll see where you could take sim. And yeah, one of the things I do these days is I teach clinicians and sim techs and anyone who wants to learn medical sim. And to put it in perspective, we can teach quick and dirty effects that you can use in the middle of courses, stuff where with very minimal equipment, you can create some really nice 2D effects, be it skin tone changes, be it some really complex but very cool bruisings, be it fresh traumatic bruisings or delayed bruisings, burns, very simple burns, simple wounds. You know, that takes a day to learn. And the other end of the scale, if you want to learn the sort of Hollywood level, if you like to create pieces that you can glue onto people and blend away and, and they become indistinguishable with skin, the whole zero to hero package is only three days. So if anyone's got CPD budget, hooray, we're here. But on a serious note, it's not weeks and weeks and weeks. As a clinician or as a sim tech, or, you can learn this stuff very, very straightforward fashion. And there's lots of stuff. If you don't have the budget, and I understand that, or you, you don't have the time, YouTube is packed with stuff of people saying, here's how you do this. Just choose your YouTube channel carefully because some of it isn't safe. Please, please, please. Stay away from zipper face, can head. These things are dangerous. People put half a tin can on their face and, you know, make it look like it's screwed in. One, it's not realistic. Tin cans don't go into your face like that. Or, you know, you don't have a zip down your face or you don't have a pencil up your nose that comes out where the bone's meant to be. Um, and two, they're really dangerous because, you know, people will do these effects for Halloween and this sort of stuff and they'll, they'll go to a party and they'll get drunk and then they'll fall over and then they'll really shove real scissors. They just cut the points off and glue them to their skin to make it look like scissors and they'll actually shove those into themselves. Everything that's done in a professional way, any props are completely friable. If you fall on them, they just dissolve. Arrows in people, knives in people, all this sort of stuff. They're specialist props that just dissolve. You can make glass. I make fake glass that goes into wounds that if you touch it, it just turns to dust. 
but it looks amazing if you don't touch it and it's in the wound. But it means you're not sticking solid things in. It really worries me when I see people using bits of chicken bone and, and bits of real rebar and sticking them into wax and going, that ah, looks like a rebar going to somebody. Great until they fall over and shove it into themselves, really taking the wax into them. So avoid that sort of stuff. If you're interested, there's lots of good stuff out there on social media. And there are some really good basic short courses that will just get you there. And then you can hit that spark of excitement and take your career forwards in it. Fantastic. And it's, I guess the kind of final reflection for me is that the one fairly consistent bit of feedback we have on basics courses is that people love having the ability and the opportunity to be exposed to sim. And actually, I guess the kind of point of all of this is that it doesn't necessarily require external people to come in and do the sim for you. There's a lot that you can do with your practice partners from a GP surgery or with the local ambulance, mountain rescue, RNLI teams, and a huge amount you can gain from it. Absolutely. I've had the pleasure of teaching everyone from ambulance staff to police to SAR to sim techs to docs. So many people have found that they're a little bit interested in it and realised that you know you don't have to be that artistic. And we've had some fantastic courses with eight, ten people around the table and the mixture of professions there. And you've got a couple of police firearms guys and a couple of ambulance heart paramedics and you've got a couple from the military and everyone getting involved and helping each other with those learning curves. And, hey, I did this. I did. And you can have some great time. Please don't think it's massively expensive. It isn't. Please don't think it's out of your reach. It isn't. Look at what's out there. And if anyone wants any advice, how they get started, again, much like the check card stuff, drop me an email very happy to point in the right direction there's lots of good stuff on the savior website there's lots of good stuff on the savior instagram and just enjoy your sim enjoy your sim and make it as realistic as you possibly can within the boundaries of making it 100 percent safe paul that's absolutely fantastic thanks so much for coming on and sharing your expertise with us again and i look forward to being even more evil with some of the basic scenarios in the future <laughs> hey brilliant stuff thank you so much again for having me it's an absolute pleasure that's it for this week if you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.